So I'm Matt Cullen. I'm uh, the policy advisor for flooding at the Association of British Insurers. That means I've been largely responsible for um, the majority of uh, the news that's uh, been around over the last three or four months uh, regarding flood insurance, uh, and it really has ramped up a lot in that period. Uh, I'll take you through a number of things in, uh, in my talk today. Start with a bit of context about flood risk, why flood insurance is a problem, um, and then move on to the initiative that the ABI and that the insurance industry is uh, putting forward as a long-term solution to make sure that something that is really vital to the resilience of people at high risk of flooding can continue in the long term. Uh, I've got personal experience of, uh, of being flooded. I, I lived in, in Abingdon, just down the road from here, in 2007 when it was, uh, when it was underwater um, and couldn't leave my house for a week. Um, so, so I know what it's like, even though I um, avoided the uh, real trauma of making a, a very significant insurance claim. Um, I'm sure people in the room here today have, uh, have also experienced flooding and know how devastating it can be. And this first slide tries to quantify some of that devastation from an insurance perspective. And first of all, I guess, is, is to look at the map. And you can see this is the the counties that were heavily affected by flooding in 2007. And you can see that it's not any one particular location. This is a geographically diverse peril that can affect geographically diverse areas uh, when, when significant events occur. 2007 was very, very expensive for insurers. So we saw a total insurance claims cost of around three billion pounds. When you consider that, uh, property insurance every year turns over around about £9 billion. You're seeing 33% of the entire property insurance market wiped out by the 2007 floods. Huge losses. 185,000 claims. Just think about how, as an insurer, you would try and deal with your share, maybe 20,000 of those, all at the same time. Significant effort. Around 130,000 of those were domestic claims, households and 50,000 of those were major. It led to 17,000 insured households going into alternative accommodation. A huge upheaval in the lives of those households. 35,000 commercial claims, 20,000 motor claims, which often gets forgotten about. It's, it's cars as well as property that get affected by, by flooding. And we've seen since 2007 a real ramping up of the frequency of flooding compared to what we saw in the 1990s and the early part of the 2000s. So I've listed examples of the 2009 Cumbrian floods, which cost around 200 million pounds, um, but made a lot more of a media splash than that relatively small number would suggest. And the 2012 floods, which were uh, unusual in being so spread throughout the year. It wasn't one big event, but it was a whole load of events spread through a long period of time. But in addition to that, we've had events in 2008, uh, in Morpeth, for example, events in 2011, uh, in, in Cornwall. So it's really been every year in recent years. And that's the kind of thing that starts to spook insurers a little bit when they're faced with these kinds of numbers. And it's only going to get worse. And it's now broadly accepted that climate change is likely to increase both the frequency and the severity of rainfall events uh, in the medium to long term. And that will increase the losses that flooding causes. Uh, the ABI did some research in 2009 which suggested that 
um, a two degree rise in global temperatures, um, which is very much a possibility in the coming years, would lead to a theoretical 16% increase in insurance premiums. And when you move through to a six degree global temperature rise, that leads you into the realms of 50%, 60% increases in uh, theoretical insurance pricing. So the impacts on flooding and then the corresponding impacts on the pricing that insurers rely on to make sure they're profitable could be very severe if we don't make sure that climate change impact on flooding is kept in check. And that means investment in flood risk management. I'll come to that, back to that in a little bit. A lot of people often say to me, surely it's insurer's job to manage this risk. Surely you, uh, you plan for this kind of thing. Surely you pay out loads of money for motor insurance. You pay out loads of money when uh, people's pipes burst. You pay out loads of money when buildings get burnt down by fire. Why is flood specifically problematic when all these other things aren't? And there's really two reasons for that. The number one reason uh, isn't easy to put into a sensible sentence, but it's to do with the high variation in flood risk spatially, leading to highly differentiated premiums. So what that means is you can very clearly, and increasingly so, map where is at high risk of flooding and where is at low risk of flooding. And that is an increasingly divergent understanding of flood risk and increasingly sophisticated, which means that we increasingly see people who are genuinely at high risk of flooding, see their insurance premiums rise to potentially unaffordable levels, and people who are at genuinely very low risk of flooding see their insurance premiums reflect that low risk of flooding. You compare that to something like storm damage, which is actually more costly on average than flooding is, but you can't differentiate down to an individual property level where, where might get its roof blown off by a storm and where might not. It's not that concentrated, it's not that varied on a very local level. So you don't get high differentiation in pricing. And then the second reason that flood risk is particularly problematic is volatility. And no business wants volatility. No, no business wants a massive profit in one year and a massive loss in the next year, that kind of thing. So this spikiness, which is shown very clearly by this graph, which shows uh, flood claims against theft claims, I think domestic, um, in both instances from 1998 to 2010, uh, it shows very, very clearly the difference between a, a peril like theft, which insurers can understand very clearly, they can see trends, they can pretty much know exactly how much it's going to cost every year because it's going to be on the same trend line as last year and the year before. Compare that to the flood line, you have got not a clue how much it's going to cost you next year. Not a clue, depends on the weather. That means insurers have to deal with volatility in their profit and their loss. It means insurers have to hold extra capital. They've got to have extra money in their back pocket to deal with the potential spikes that could come down the tracks next year. As I've just said, it's harder to identify trends when you've got a spiky uh, profile like the flood graph. And finally, you've got the guaranteed uh, media spotlight on those spikes. So you're going to be undertaking your claims handling dealing with customers and so on and so forth in a very different environment to the, th the, the theft claims that kind of trickle through all year. This is all the flood claims at once, lots of media attention, lots of criticism, country running out of builders because they're all being used on other flood claims, 
no hotel rooms left, and so on and so forth. Makes flood risks difficult for insurers right from the word go. Insurers don't like insuring flood, and it's often difficult to understand why that might be, but hopefully that gives you a flavour. So because of the difficulty of, uh, of flooding and insurance, uh, there's been various agreements actually in place to try and make sure that flood insurance is available to people right, right back since the 60s. Um, and that's been formalised, or was formalised, between 2000 and 2013 by an agreement known as the Statement of Principles Agreement, which uh, is regularly referred to in the news. You may have heard of it. That's what it looks like. Not very interesting to look at, but it, it was a very significant document for 13 years um, because it safeguarded people's ability at least to get a quote, at least to get cover from somebody. And it basically said that your current insurer will continue to offer you cover as long as government continues to manage flood risk effectively. It was a pretty simple trade-off, really. There are a few complexities that I'm not going to go into, but that's the long short of it. It applied to both households and small businesses. Um, properties built before 2009 because we didn't want to incentivise uh, new developments to be built in unwise locations by giving this kind, of, uh, this kind of help to new builds if they needed help. Uh, larger commercial properties weren't covered. Now, all four of these agreements, or four of them for the, uh, for the four countries of the UK, expired on the 30th of June 2013, so four months ago now. So leading up to that date, uh, probably for about, I don't know, Edmund, was it th about three years, I suppose, before that date? It must have been summer 2010. People really started worrying about um, what was going to happen when this Statement of Principles Agreement expired. Um, for that reason, there was quite a lot of work done, and it, it really ramped up all the way through 2011, 2012, and came to a head uh, this summer uh, as we tried to come up with a better solution than the Statement of Principles. This was never something that was going to be a right for the long term, because it doesn't say anything about the price that people would be charged for the cover. It just said that your insurer will continue to offer you a quote. So we were increasingly starting to see insurers saying, you know what, I have to offer you a quote, but I'm going to charge you four grand, or I'm going to put a £10,000 excess on your policy, things that just don't work for consumers. So we started thinking about more innovative ways in which, uh, in which flood insurance might work after the, after the agreement ended. And one of those options was we, uh, we just have a free market. We, the agreement ends and, and insurers are just free to do whatever they like. Um, they can offer you cover, they can charge you what they want, and so on and so forth. And the insurance industry, um, very rarely for the insurance industry, argued against a free market. You know, we're notorious as an industry for not wanting regulation, not wanting to be controlled, wanting to uh, be allowed to do our business in the way that we want to do our business. Um, so it was unusual that we uh, didn't argue for this, uh, and, and this really shows why. Now, insurers, insurers know that flooding's not attractive to them, right? So we know that if a single large insurer decides that it's going to ditch all its customers that are at high flood risk, no one else is going to be very interested in those customers. So if one big insurer left the market, it could be a foreign-owned insurer, their CEO sitting in France could say, look, get out of flood. It's not even the choice of the UK business. Um, you could see 60,000, 70,000 people all of a sudden struggling to get insurance for their home. 
And as we know, we want people to have insurance for their home because it's important and because they need help at such a devastating time. So that's bad news. Even if that doesn't happen, we've got a table here that shows likely impacts on numbers of people paying certain premiums if we move to a free market and, uh, and allowed it to sort of do its thing for a couple of years. And we see that the numbers of people we'd expect to spend £500 or more on their, on their insurance would go up from 75,000 to over half a million homes. Really significant increase. Uh, also significant increases in the number of people paying 750,000 or even 2,500 pounds or more each year for their insurance. And from a government policy perspective, and also from an industry customer perspective, these kind of numbers weren't really seen as acceptable. You'll always get arguments that that kind of behavior is a good thing. That kind of pricing drives positive behavior. It drives the management of risk both by government, uh, local government uh, individuals. Um, that's, a, that's a government decision fundamentally, and it's a, it's a place that government didn't want to go. It's also a place that the insurance industry was a bit worried about going to um, because of uh, reputational issues more than anything else. So what is the, what's the reasonable, realistic alternative to this? This is the industry's framework, which uh, I'm delighted to say on the 27th of June, government agreed was their preferred uh, model as well. Uh, and I'll come on to a bit about that in a minute. Floodery. Floodery is uh, actually um, initially developed by a company from, uh, from Oxford, Oxera, uh, economic uh, consultants, who uh, worked with me and my team at the ABI to uh, develop the building blocks that have now, over the last couple of years, become this framework. And what it is, is basically this. You'd set up uh, an entity known as Flood Re here, uh, the central blue box, and that would offer flood insurance at a set price. And that set price would vary based on the council tax band of the property that is um, being insured. That's about being progressive. We don't want uh, a big council tax band G home to be offered uh, insurance for uh, a price that is much cheaper than it can afford, i.e. be over-subsidised more than it needs to be subsidised. And equally, we don't want uh, you know, a council tax band A home to have to pay the same reasonably high flood re-premium as a, as, a, as a council tax band G home might have to pay. Council tax band's not a perfect uh, proxy for people's or households' ability to pay, but it's probably the best we can do. Just to give you a flavour of where those numbers might end up, um, Floodery might offer um, cover to a council tax band A home for around about £200. Uh, for a band G home, we expect that to be up in the 500 to 600 region. So insurers would, for any home that they didn't feel they could beat that price on, send the, send the risk across to Floodery. But for any home, and we think probably 98% of homes, this will be the case, insurers will feel they can beat that threshold price. And they'll just get offered insurance as normal by the insurer. Nothing will change for them. We'll have an open market, which works fine. It's really the 1% to 2%, 200,000 to 500,000 homes at high risk of flooding around the country where insurers do not feel they can beat those threshold prices. And therefore, it will make sense for them to charge the, the floodery prices and pack off the flood risk to the flood refund. So they would pay these flood premiums into flood re, and 
then when those um, homes made a claim, they would recoup the costs of the claims from flood re. This is, a, this is a, what we call a reinsurance facility. So you buy your insurance from the insurer, the insurer reinsures away the risk to flood re. Now that fund is fundamentally going to be underfunded because by definition insurers are putting in people for let's say 200 pounds and all the people they're putting in are the people they think should be charged more than 200 pounds. So by definition you've got a fundamental underfunding process going on here whereby you don't have enough premiums going in to pay your claims on average long term. Obviously floods very spiky so in the good years you will probably will have enough. That's why you need to support floodery to bring it up to the correct level of funding. And that's where this notion of a levy comes in. So this is basically everybody supporting the few. It's a cross-subsidisation from everybody, including people at low risk, to support people at high risk of flooding. And we think that industry levy should be set at around about £180 million a year. Um, that's not been finalised yet, but that's where we expect it to land. Um, and that would uh, top up the pot to the tune of around about £320 million a year in total. So we expect the premium income to be about £140 million a year. And we've got a couple of yellow boxes over here. This is all about how you then manage the spikiness of flooding. Because just like a normal insurer, a floodery is going to have a very spiky or volatile experience. Some years it will make a massive profit and some years it will make a massive loss. That's the definition of how flooding works. Now, much of that volatility can be managed by buying commercial reinsurance. So that means in yet another step of reinsurance, Flood Re will then insure away some of that volatility to the international reinsurance market. So very big companies like Swiss Re or Munich Re, some of these companies are you know, in the top 10 biggest turnovers of any company in the world. They really are massive massive companies that can, that can absorb these kind of spikes. That's not going to be the be-all and end-all. You can't completely smooth losses through reinsurance. Um, so there will still be some volatility to manage. Uh, and government has a role to play there. We don't quite know what it is yet because they've been pretty non-committal, to say the least, on, uh, on what, they, what they expect their role to be. Initially, we said to them, look, government, why don't, we, why don't we work out what our 99.5 percentile is, our 1 in 200 year flood cost? So the, the cost of a year that we would expect only to happen 0.5% uh, of years or 1, one in every 200 years. We reckon that's around about £2.5 billion pounds, um, for flood re. And that will equate to around about a 6 or £7 billion pound flood for the entire country. Now compare that to 2007, you're talking way, way worse than 2007. Government said no, we won't pay, we won't, we won't pay the claims above, above that level. Um, that would have been the easiest thing for them to do because that would help put a limit on what the volatility, what the, what the liabilities of this fund are likely to be. Government said no, we can't take the risk of having uh, a, big, a big liability arise in year that increases the national, national debt. Uh, sorry. So then we went away and thought about it for a bit and we said, OK, well, maybe, maybe the insurance industry can take this on uh, above, above even this one in 200 level. So it, when we have genuinely massively catastrophic years. But, um, but there are a number of conditions that are definitely going to have to be met if we're going to do that. And those are two of the unresolved issues that I'll talk about in a couple of slides time.
And the final thing we agreed to is that government needs to make commitments on managing flood risk. This will only be a sustainable model with the levy at that kind of level if flood risk stays reasonably constant. If flood risk increases very significantly and we see significantly more people needing to go into this fund, then inevitably that number is going to have to go up, which means you're increasing the subsidisation from people at low risk to people at high risk. And subsidisation from low risk to high risk is something that's acceptable to government to a certain extent. It seems acceptable to the industry to a certain extent, but there comes a point at which people stop thinking it's fair that people at low risk have to pay more to support people at high risk. That's all a bit of a knife edge, and we'll come back to that in a sec. But we have made some pretty good progress in the last, um, what, four months now, I suppose it must have been. Um, June the 27th was a key date. That was the day after the spending review. We waited till that point because one of our key negotiating positions with government was we're not signing up to this unless you increase the uh, flood risk management budget in the spending review, which uh, remarkably they did. Um, so that was good news. Um, and I think actually, although it's easy to overlook amidst all the technical detail about flood re, it's probably one of the biggest and most important achievements of the process that we've been through over the last three years. Even if floodery ends up falling over and not going ahead, at least we've increased flood risk management spending by government. So governments announced floodery as their preferred policy option. Um, they're not putting all their eggs in one basket. There are a number of other things that they're bearing in mind as ways, ways in which they might try and make flood insurance work. But this is their first choice. Um, and they held a public consultation this summer. Uh, and the response was broadly very supportive of floodery, at least in principle although there were a number of questions raised which are on the next slide. So there's a major implementation project underway. I've hired a project manager to help me do it. It's a um, really, really uh, big piece of work and uh, hundreds of work packages, hundreds of people involved, really is a very big piece of work. It's going to take a long time to get this in place. We reckon it's going to be middle of 2015 probably. And that means that we've got two years between now and then during which insurers have committed to voluntarily continue to meet their commitments from that old Statement of Principles agreement which expired this summer. Now we've been saying for the last two years that that agreement, while it's useful in a sense, has a, has a number of flaws. So inevitably, for the next two years, we have a system that has flaws, but it's probably better than having nothing. So that's where we are. I just thought I'd give you some thoughts on the scope. Now there's been quite a bit of uh, media interest in floodery, as we'd, as we'd expected. And these have really been the controversial issues that have come up. So I wanted to kind of explain why we've got the position that we have on these. So small businesses. So floodery is designed for domestic properties at the moment. And there's been a lot of criticism, including actually from within the, at some parts of the insurance industry, particularly the insurance broker community, about why, um, why are small businesses not included in this? Um, and there's two real answers to that. Number one is that uh, it would just be too difficult, <laughs> too complicated. Uh, the market is too varied. Uh, the premiums that are affordable for different types of business are too varied. So this kind of solution would be very difficult to implement in the commercial insurance market. And the second reason actually is we don't have that much evidence of a problem on a wide scale. Often you'll get businesses that um, struggle to access cover after a flood. Um, Cockermouth High Street in 2009 is the most famous example of, of, a, of a high street of a, of a collection of businesses that were um, 
that were decimated by flooding, Hebden Bridge again in 2012. But there's no broad market-wide problem that needs to be solved in the same way as there is for domestic, domestic insurance. That's a slightly different issue to the blurry boundary between commercial and domestic insurance. I'm sure there are, people can think of dozens of examples of things that are sort of homes and sort of businesses. Farms, bed and breakfasts, pubs, static caravans, you name it, there's loads of them. So what do you do about that? Um, that's not really been finalised yet. We're, we're getting towards finalising what's in and what's out. But, um, but everyone seems to be uh, putting their oar in with, um, with their views. Council tax mandate has been controversial. We, um, basically, we don't really care, to be honest. The, the numbers are very, very, very small indeed. But, um, but from government's perspective, they're desperate to avoid um, case studies of mansions being subsidised, basically. Um, the problem with council tax band H, because it's the top band, is it's much broader, actually, than the other bands, which are bounded at both ends. Band H goes right from um, properties that were worth £320,000 in 1991, so probably seven or £800,000 now, up to Posh and Beck's new £45 million mansion. So government wants to avoid the kind of stories around that kind of stuff. So that's why they're out. Homes built 2009. Um, there have been lots of people who think that um, it's not fair for new builds to be excluded. Um, I can sympathise with them to an extent, but, um, but also the industry thinks it's very important to maintain continuity with the former Statement of Principles Agreement, which had this as a pillar, because we didn't want to encourage unwise development through subsidisation and support. And then flood excess has been quite controversial because we sort of forgot to talk about it in all the publicity about flood re, and it's, it's not, on the, uh, not on the diagram anywhere. Flood excesses, we hope, will be um, capped at about £250 through a, through a market-led mechanism in flood re. So that would work by flood re charging insurers um, a reinsurance excess of £250. So that means basically when the insurer recoups the cost of the claim from uh, from flood re, it will get all of the claim costs back minus £250. So it wouldn't be in a competitive environment. It wouldn't make business sense for insurers then to charge the customers any more than that. That's the hope. If that doesn't work in the long run, then we'll have to. Um, look at maybe rules and regulations that set excesses, but we hope it can be delivered through a market mechanism. This is taking me longer than I thought. How long have I got? We haven't got any time, actually. Nightmare. Last slide. A um, couple of ongoing issues. Finalising the underwriting scope. I talked about a few issues that aren't quite finalised yet. Um, arrangements for highly catastrophic years. I touched on the fact that government doesn't want to accept any liabilities, no matter how catastrophic the year. Um, that's all right, but insurers need to be assured that the capital implications of that decision are not too burdensome. You've got things on accounting treatment of cash flows to avoid profit and loss volatility for insurers. What does that mean? This is about making sure that uh, if insurers have to put money in um, to flood re, that that can be accounted for in a way which doesn't lead to big, big spikes in their profit and loss, even though they're transferring the risk through to flood re. Um, it's something that PwC are doing some work on for us and it's rather technical. This is the big one actually, government governance requirements. Because, because the levy on flood re, that bit there, is a tax, theoretically. Um, that means 
Fluddery is likely to be a public body. And that means that we've got all kinds of worries that um, annoying public procurement processes and that kind of thing might need to be gone through. Um, and uh, while, while I'm not going to criticise um, public procurement law, um, we, we don't want Fluddery to be in a position where it's too bureaucratic for insurers to bother going ahead with. Um, so there's a lot of work going on to try and make sure that doesn't happen. And then finally, state aid clearance. That's clearance from Brussels to make sure that Fluddery is, um, is seen not to provide any um, aid from the government to uh, insurers, basically, which we think will be fine, but it's a step we've got to, got to take. And that's it. Um, sorry I overran a bit more than I thought, but uh, I hope that was useful. Um, I hope Edmund's presentation complements that well, and I'm happy to take any questions.